You may be seated. You're doing that. Julianne, that's when you pray for me. That's okay. <laughs> We're still learning the program. You can go sit down and pray for me because, you know. Hey, let me open us in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for your kindness, for the way that you love us, for the curveballs that you throw in life. And Lord, how those are just really good opportunities for us to remember that we trust you and that ultimately you are the one that accomplishes things. Lord, I just thank you for this church family. Pray that you would bless your word this morning, Lord, that we would be inspired to know you, to be like you, that we would have a sense of urgency and passion for the gospel. And Lord, that that would impact the way that we love the lost, the way that we love each other, the way that we encourage one another. In your name, amen. Hey, what a what an amazing way to get a, thir- a, cu- a curveball thrown. Like, you can't think of better news than there's a new kid in the, in the family. And one of my favorite things is that the new baby is born on, on uh, Lil's birthday. And uh, Jessica was born on my birthday, and I have just, I've loved that ever since she was born. So what a fun thing for siblings to share a birthday. And Jonathan got to share a birthday his whole life. So I'm sure that he's excited about that. You know, um, and, and what, a, what a great example this morning of just the body of Christ using their gifts. I'm so thankful for the worship team and just their heart. And kind of you have this group of people that have never played together, playing songs that they've never done, done before. And just the way that that all came together, just the, heart, the hearts involved. That was awesome. And so uh, thank you. Thank you all for that. Um, this um, this COVID-19 time is such an amazing time. I'm really thankful for it. One of the things that we've been talking about as a staff and kind of thinking through is this. Is the church essential? Is the church essential? And one of the things I was thinking about, like even in our discussions of the children's ministry, and we're just talking about, are we going to open the children's ministry or not? And there's a lot of churches that have opened like their main auditorium, which we have done, but have not yet opened their children's ministry. And uh, so one of the, some of the things that we're talking about is, is the children's ministry essential? Is youth ministry essential? Is gathering on Sunday morning essential? And one of the things that I think about that, like with our circumstances, our circumstances related to COVID-19 are probably not going to change in the next year. So are we just going to put certain elements of ministry on hold until the year's over? And one of the things that I was just sharing with some folks was just saying, if, if it's not important enough to do for the next year, let's just cancel it and never do it. Like, why would we spend time and energy doing something every week that we could just put on hold for a year? Now, again, um, there are health concerns. We need to think all those things through. We need to be wise in that. But here's what I love about this discussion is, is this. What is it that happens on Sunday morning in the kids' ministry? And what is it that happens on Sunday morning when we're together in our church ministry or in these different ministries? What is it that is essential, that, that can't happen anywhere else the way it needs to happen, the way it does happen when we're together? And these are the things that I think about. We are about the gospel and sharing the gospel, praying, uh, uh, praying for people, teaching people to know what God wants for them does not happen when we're by ourselves in the same way that it happens when we're together. Like one of the things that just when you think about a children's ministry, for example, 
Um, Michelle and I, from the time our kids were very young, we prayed for them, we shared the gospel with them, and we were, you know, thinking about where they were spiritually and trying to figure out how to encourage them. But, you know, we cannot do as parents, as diligent as we are, we cannot do what the body of Christ does. And some of the really significant things that happened in our kids' lives were not because of the things we said to them. They were because of the things that somebody else said to them. And so the thing is, is that as a whole, we need the body of Christ. We're all working together, and you cannot accomplish what God wants us to accomplish when we're by ourselves. But just because we're all together does not mean that we are doing those things that can only be done in the body of Christ. And, and I think for a lot of, there's a lot of people, and I'll just tell you guys, I've heard so many pastors and leaders and different people say things like, you know, this is a new kind of church. We're going to move away from gathering together. You know, it's in, we don't really need to do that. I just think about the logistical benefits of waking up in the morning, putting on your pajamas, sitting on your couch, and watching a service. That is so much easier than getting dressed and fighting with your family on the way to church. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's just easier. But the, but the question is, like, is it, is it important and is it worth doing that? And so, um, but the gospel doesn't happen the way it should. Um, discipleship, training, you have to be with people to live life around them, to think around them, to explain, hey, this is what God says you should do, and then to stand back and say, okay, are they doing it? And, and if they're doing it, maybe they misunderstood something you said, and to be able to step in and say, oh, see how that conversation went with this person? Think about it in this way. Those are things that do not happen when we are not together doing ministry together. Um, love genuinely loving people, knowing people, caring about people, encouraging people. That does not happen when you sit by yourself in a living room. And we talked about this earlier when we were considering opening the church as a whole, but I love this discussion because sometimes going to church on Sunday morning doesn't feel essential. And it doesn't feel essential because Sometimes we're not thinking properly about what's happening. Like we can actually have people doing things for us that are essential, but because we don't know what to look for, we don't realize it's happening. We don't realize it's essential. I remember as a, as a teenager growing up, my parents made me go to church every week and I hated church and it was a, it was a battle every single morning and we just got in fights all the time. And uh, finally my mom just said, all right, I'm not gonna fight with you anymore. You can stay home. And she went to church without me, and that was just such a wonderful day in my life. And uh, for the next three months, I didn't go to church. And one of the things I started noticing in my life, I started as an unbeliever, I wasn't even a believer yet, but I started feeling the difference in my life not being around other believers. And I actually didn't start going back to church until I became a Christian some, um, you know, years later. But in that period of time, even as an unbeliever, I'm like, man, my life's different because I don't show up in church on Sunday. And so the thing is, is that it's really important for us to know what's happening, to know what's essential. And sometimes another reason that church doesn't feel essential is because the essential things are not actually happening. Because just because we all gather together doesn't mean we're doing the things that are essential. 
And so, um, so as I think about this morning, our, our title is Evangelism Through the Eyes of Jesus. And ultimately, we're going to be looking at Jesus' perspective on evangelism, on salvation, uh, the things that motivated Jesus to do the things he did, the way he thought about the things that he did, and, the, and, and why he taught people to do things the way he taught them to do it. Because if we believe and listen and hear the things that Jesus says, and if we put those things into, into practice, then we'll be doing church the way God wants us to. You know, here's another reason we need to know what's essential. If, if we don't know what's essential, we fight about things that are not essential. Um, when we're trying to make ministry decisions, what should we do? What should we not do? Which song should we sing? Which song should we not sing? Uh, um, should we do an event in a park or should we do it in a church building? If we don't actually know what the essential thing is, we can't answer those questions. And sometimes it doesn't actually matter if it's in the church or out of the church. But if you know it's essential, you can say, oh, okay, it doesn't matter if we do it in the church, and it doesn't matter if we do it in the, out of the church, so let's not fight about that. Hey, what, who, what do you guys all want to do? Let's just do whatever we feel like doing. But if there's something significant about our purpose that can only happen in one of those locations, then that becomes an important debate. And I think a lot of the difficulty and challenges that churches have are because they don't actually know what their purpose is. Or they say what their purpose is, but they don't do their purpose. And so, um, anyway, I am very excited about this morning and just the things that Jesus says. And this is a challenging passage. Um, Craig told me that we gave him a hard one. Well, this is a hard one, too. And then in, in a, in a, I'm going to be having surgery in the future. And uh, it's a hernia surgery. It's not a big deal. But I'm going to be out on a Sunday, and it's going to fall on the unforgivable sin. <laughs> Craig, that's my gift to you. Uh, I, you know, in, in seminary, I've had friends say, man, nobody can ever define the unforgivable sin, but this Sunday, I'm going to study it and I'm going to define it. And so I called this friend of mine. I'm like, so um, what'd you figure out? And he's like, I don't know. It, I didn't get that done as much as I thought I would. So Craig, I'll be looking forward to watching that sermon uh, when you let us know what that is. Um, so one of the things that Jesus has been saying He's been saying that, that sharing the gospel and being spiritually faithful brings persecution. And um, when we think about evangelism through the eyes of Jesus, that's one of the things that he says. You're going to preach. Some people are going to hear and believe, and they're going to embrace what you're doing, and others aren't. And when they don't, shake the, the dust off your feet and move on and share the gospel with somebody else. That's why we don't pander. Because what we realize is that us trying to tweak the message so somebody will accept it um, doesn't pan out the way often we think it would. And just a few examples. Um, you know, Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, a faithful man. Um, and in Acts chapter 7, Stephen preaches this sermon. And at the end of the sermon, or kind of toward the end of it, the people get so angry, they gnash their teeth, and they say, we are going to kill you. And they actually stone Stephen to death. They pick up rocks, they throw it at him. Uh, his body is crushed by these stones. And just before he dies, he looks into heaven and he says, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And, and that's kind of a terrifying thought if you're the one of the ones that are throwing the rocks. You are killing Jesus' favorite 
uh, one of Jesus' faithful servants. And he's not sitting the way the Bible says Jesus usually sits at God's right hand. It says he's standing. That's, that's like a bad thing when you do that to one of God's children. And so they stone him. And what we find out is that the Apostle Paul was watching, holding coats. And not only did he not have a sense of fear about what happened, that motivated him and inspired him. And he said, okay, I want to go kill Christians. This was great. And then he starts persecuting the church. And then we see in Acts chapter 4, verse 19, Paul preaches a sermon. He preaches the gospel. People think he's a god. And he says, no, I'm not a god. Worship God. And then the Pharisees come in from another area, and they convince people. And Paul gets stoned. And they drag him out as though he's dead. And we know that God allows him to live. That's where people think that Paul was caught up into heaven. And then we see in, uh, for John the Baptist, we just looked at that last week, a faithful man. Things in life were not working out the way he wanted. He felt this quandary, but he was persecuted and executed for being spiritually faithful. And I think that's one of the foundational things for us as believers. Whose approval are we pursuing? But then there's also a lot of people who are unloving, uncaring, and, and the truth is brutal the way that they say it, the way that they deliver it. And that's actually not what God wants for us either. You know, I have a, a friend who I was asking him, do you ever share the gospel with anybody at work? And he said, no, why would I do that? Um, if God chooses people to be saved, they're going to be saved. And uh, God's the one who brings salvation. What I say doesn't matter. Whether I talk to him or not, doesn't matter. If God's going to save him, he's going to save him. And that's not actually in the Bible either. But, but look at this. Look what it says here in talking about the manner of our ministry. It says in 2 Timothy 2.24, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. So that's demeanor, able to teach, which means you actually understand what the Bible says about things. Patiently enduring evil. You know, ministry and church is never about us. If somebody does something to you that hurts your feelings, who cares? If you didn't get the kind of song that you wanted, who cares? It's not about you. And so patiently enduring evil, correcting opponents with gentleness. You know, think about the, the, the internal thing that's happening there. Somebody's being corrected, but with gentleness. Why? that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Uh, another verse here, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time, and let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. As we read through this passage, there's nothing that we're going to cover that says it doesn't matter what we do or how we do it. But it is going to focus on the fact that ultimately God is the one who saves people. And uh, when I think about our points this morning, they're this, that we are driven and we are motivated. The fact that we understand what's essential, that is not unimportant. That is of utmost significance. We are motivated by what is at stake eternity is at stake and what eternity looks like if a person is separated from God in hell or if they're with God in God's presence in heaven that matters and that's what's at stake 
we strive to be faithful to the Lord in our ministry. But ultimately, the results of our ministry are up to God. And so we do what's right, we're faithful, but we don't rise and fall with the response of the people around us. That's something that's between them and God. And the third thing is this. We treasure Christ personally. We treasure him. We love Jesus. And we want other people to have the same blessing in their life that we've received. And as we read through this passage and we hear Jesus talking about what's at stake, talking about who's in charge, who, who changes the heart, and when he describes himself, it's going to remind us why we love him so much and why we want everyone to know Jesus. So let's read. Um, let's read Matthew chapter 11, verse 20. Matthew chapter 11, verse 20 says this. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chirazan! Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? Will you be brought down to you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. What an incredibly powerful passage. Man, that is motivating. Now, just um, to look at a few things here. Um, so on, on one side, you, you, see the, you see the map of Israel, and I put a little red box there, and I zoomed in on this other side. This is what's significant about these three cities mentioned. Do you see Chorazin and Capernaum and Bethsaida? Capernaum is the, the little dot with the red circle around it right next to the lake. Do you know what was significant about Capernaum? That, that was Jesus's hometown on the Sea of Galilee. Remember we talked about how Jesus moved there at the beginning of Matthew, and that's where he met Matthew, and that's where a lot of um, things happened. This is like the center of Jesus's ministry. These cities were very well acquainted and very familiar with Jesus and his miracles. The feeding of the 5,000 happened close to there. Um, people were, were healed. Demons were cast out. Um, an amazing amount of miracles were done in these cities. And yet these are the cities that failed to repent. Now these other cities mentioned, we have um, Tyre, Sidon, and that huge circle around the Dead Sea is because that's where people guess Sodom was. It's very salty, the mountains are salty, and what happened to Lot's wife when, when she was burned? She, she turned into a pillar of salt, right? Well, the thing about that, do you know that nobody actually knows where Sodom is? Jesus just decided the city is so wicked, I am wiping it off the, off the map. And maybe someday they'll figure out where it is, but nobody even knows where it was. God just erased it from the map. Tyre and Sidon, do you remember the king of Tyre when we were talking about Satan? Um, the, the king of Tyre is actually addressed where, where 
the prophet talks to the king of Tyre and then describes Satan because Satan is the driving influence behind this king. I mean, these were wicked pagan cities. And Jesus says to the Jews, it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for them than for you. You know, it's kind of an interesting thing. There is huge spiritual privilege on the part of these Jewish cities. They were raised with synagogues. They were raised with people teaching them the Old Testament. They were very religious. And, and these other pagan cities, they didn't have teaching. They didn't have those same things. This, these are some of the things that stand out to me is that he, in verse 20, it says he began to denounce. And that, that is a strong word for judgment. The, the cities where most of his mighty works had been done. This is one of the things that we've seen through the book of Matthew and we'll continue to see. Undeniable proof is useless for a person whose heart is turned away from God. And you can deny God by saying there is no God, I don't believe in God, or you can deny God by being religious. Those are both ways to deny God. And so it's kind of confusing, and we have to think about what does it actually mean to have a relationship with God? What's the difference between being saved and being religious? Because these cities were religious. They talked about God. They studied the Old Testament. And Jesus says, you did not repent. So on the whole issue of repentance, um, here's what Jesus didn't say. He didn't say, you've been taught, and so you need to repent. But all these pagan cities, well, they're okay. They don't have to repent. You know, there is a universal obligation for every single person to repent and come to God. And so we preach the gospel, but to whom much is given, much is required. And so when you think about this from a religious perspective, if you've been raised in church, if you've been, if you've been in church your whole life, then you would fall into the religious category of these cities. Now, one of the things that is amazing and inspiring to me is when I see people who have grown up in an unbelieving home with pain and sorrow and broken lives, and they come to the Lord, and they're so passionate, and they, they have a desire to reach the lost, and, and they sit, and they, as they hear God's word, it's just motivating to them. And then there's other people who have just grown up. They've heard it so many times. It just goes over their head. It's, they're not passionate. They're not excited. They're not motivated by the things of God. That's actually a tremendous um, liability and weak, weakness for people who grow up in a Christian home. Have you seen that? Uh, older people, passionate, that have come to know Christ later. That was uh, actually one of the big things for Michelle and I. We're like, okay, so we grew up living unbelieving sinful lives. So we're passionate about these things. What, how are we going to help our kids not just grow up and, and, and have no heart for the things of God, which is a huge possibility. And so there's this universal call for repentance. And like politics, have you ever seen uh, two people look at the same set of facts and argue in two different directions? You know, it's like, get the Democratic Party and give them a set of facts and say, what does this mean? And man, they, you get attorneys, they get really smart people, and they argue in this direction. And then we get the Republicans, and we put them together, and we say, hey, look at this set of facts. And all these really smart, intelligent people um, argue in the opposite direction. You want to know why? It's because people are not um, neutral 
They don't have no agenda. And, and, and that's what we find out here is that the heart is what matters. And, and it doesn't matter evidence and all those things. The only thing that matters is what's your heart. And, and if God's opening and touching your heart, you're going to do the right thing with the information you're given. And if your heart is hard and if it's closed, it doesn't matter what you're told. Your heart will take you a different direction. Okay, so a couple observations and we're going to move to the next point. You know, it says here, if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. So you want to know what the first thing that jumps out to me is? Well, God, you want to save people, and if you did those miracles, then they would have got saved. Well, why didn't you go do the miracles? And, and so he didn't do that. God says, I know this thing could have been done, and they would have come to know the Lord. They would have repented but God didn't do that. You know, this is an interesting thing with uh, Jonah and these prophets in the Old Testament. God actually sent a prophet to Tyre. He sent a prophet to Sidon, and he sent a prophet to Nineveh. And Jonah was a terrible prophet. And he went to Nineveh, and he was just saying, first of all, I don't want to preach to these people because I hate them, and I want them to die. Jonah was a racist. Um, I hate them. I want them to die. They've sinned against me, and they're not Jews. And so I don't like them, and I don't, I don't want to preach to them. And so God took this terrible prophet and you know, there's a whole story about how God had him go back. So he finally walks through the city, and he just walks through the city, and he just says, in 40 days, you're all going to be destroyed. And then he goes up on a, on a hill, and he sits there, and the, the, the city hears that prophet. What a terrible message. And what, a, what a terrible heart for evangelism. But they repent, and God forgives them. And then Jonah says, that's terrible. I knew this is what was going to happen, which why is why I didn't go preach to them. When you want to know something, faithful prophets went and preached to Tyre and went and preached to Sidon, and, and they gave them warnings. They weren't terrible prophets like Jonah. They got better prophets than Nineveh got. And when they heard those messages from those prophets, they said, no thanks, and they continued on their way. So it's not that God didn't reach out to them. It's not that they're not going to face judgment. But, but that's, that was just an interesting thing that stood out to me. You will be brought down to Hades. Um, Hades is described in Luke chapter 16 as a place of flame and torment and memory and no hope of ever getting out. Uh, that is where these people are going to go. And so that, that is just like, this is a serious thing. Um, one of these cities, by the way, the seat of Moses. This is the seat of Moses where Jesus says um, that you spoke, uh, you, you like to sit in the seat of Moses. These were religious people who failed to repent, and yet they were trying to, to teach other people. So here's the thing that I consider in this regard. This is what motivates you and I. Eternity is at stake. Look at this. He says, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our ambition to be pleasing to him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and what I hope is known also to your conscience. The Apostle Paul is just saying, we see God, we see his, the, the fearful wrath, we understand that we will be judged by him, everybody. 
And the fear of God motivates us to persuade people, to reason with them, to call them into a relationship with Christ. So here's the second thing. We strive to be faithful, but we trust God with the results. This is an interesting section as we read this, what Jesus is going to say here. So let's look at verse... Let's look at verse 25. This is an interesting way that Jesus opens. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to children. You know, Jesus is talking about the response of rejection in these cities. And Jesus says, you've hidden this from them and you have revealed it to others jesus never blames um, the messenger in this sense he jesus was the messenger and jesus says god you are the one that opens the heart do you know why we pray for people's salvation because we want god to work in their heart i was thinking about um first uh, corinthians chapter 3 verse 6 where paul says i planted apollos watered but God gave the growth. You know, that is this wonderful thing because Jesus says, I faithfully ministered, and God, I thank you for the results. Some people didn't respond and some people did. And, and Jesus thanks God for both. That was pretty a uh, significant situation in my life as my dad was approaching the end of his life and he didn't know the Lord and I was praying for him and I was sharing the gospel with him and I started imagining what is going to happen when, when that phone call comes and I find out my dad left this world and he didn't know the Lord. And, and I started thinking to myself, will I be able to thank God for his response knowing that, that God either opens a heart or he doesn't? And, um, and, and that was a, a struggle. Now, thankfully, the Lord didn't make me go through that because my dad came to know the Lord at the end of his life. And I'm so thankful for that. But Jesus thanks God. And then he says, yes, verse 26, yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Jesus is the one that opens hearts. And there's such freedom that comes in ministry. For us to be motivated, driven, to realize that eternity is at stake, and then to do the best we can, knowing that Jesus ministered perfectly and people didn't didn't come to christ they didn't come to him um, none of us ministers perfectly there's flaws in everything that we do all the time and to be able to say i'm going to do my best and god work in spite of me work through me uh, you have a conversation with somebody and maybe you say two things that are right and one thing that's wrong and you just pray god help them to forget the thing i said that was wrong and remember the things i said that were right i mean just the fact that we see that God is the one who does ministry. We're faithful, and we trust God with the results. Now, look, look at the third point here, and I just love this. We treasure Christ, and we want everyone we know to be spiritually rich. We've received spiritual riches, and that's what we want for the people around us. 
Look at verse 28. Jesus says, come to me. You know, that's what's wrong with that friend of mine who says, I don't share the gospel. Why would I? God's sovereign. <laughs> Jesus didn't walk around and not tell anybody anything and not say anything to anybody and just say, oh yeah, God's sovereign, they'll come. Jesus appeals to people. He asks them to make a choice. He says, come to me. And then he makes this great argument for why they should come to him. And so Jesus is, it's this call he's inviting and he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So the, the very thing, this burden, this weight, Jesus says, come to me because I provide rest. Take my yoke upon you. That yoke is, he's saying, come to me, but what's a yoke? A yoke is, is this piece of wood that you put across a couple cows when you're, or, or a couple you know, uh, animals that when you're going to have them pull something, when you're going to have them work. Like that's a work thing. And Jesus is saying if, if, you are, if you are burdened and if you're heavy laden and if you're weary, come to me. I'm going to make you work. But he says, that my, he, he says here, take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, or humble, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. When you think about the call to discipleship, what Jesus has told his disciples, everybody may reject you. Um, if, if you want to follow me, you've got to be willing to sacrifice everything in your life. That doesn't sound like burden-free living. You know the guy who comes to Jesus? And he says, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. But then Jesus says, take my yoke because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's, um, we'll hit some of these parables in the future. But if somebody, if, if Bill Gates walked up to you and he said, I want you to give me every single thing you own. And I want, to get, I want you to give me all your money. And then I'll give you everything I have. Who would take that deal? I'm just like, where do I sign? Like, how is that a sacrifice for me to give you everything and then you're going to give me so much more? Like, that's the whole issue of Jesus' yoke being easy and light. You sacrifice all, but you gain something so much more valuable than anything that you could have. Uh, Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light. I, I think about this passage in uh, 2 Corinthians Chapter 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. You know, um, Ephesians 2.10, have you ever thought about this? Uh, we obey Jesus if we love him, but look what Ephesians 2, verse 5 says. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. We don't have to earn our standing before Christ. We're not trying to earn his favor. We're not working hard to try to maintain it. We're not performing. We have God's love. We have his acceptance. We don't have to work for it. And then the good works, Ephesians 2.10 says that God prepared good works for us to do beforehand. 
Uh, Philippians tells us that work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his own good pleasure. We work, but it's God that works in us. What an amazing thing that we're not trying to perform, that, that we're not like John the Baptist. He's questioning, and he had God's approval. As believers, we have God's approval. We've sacrificed all to follow Christ. But we're not wondering if we'll be good enough, if one day we'll lose the benefits of what he's provided. Jesus' yoke is easy, and his burden is light. Let me pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be motivated, driven, and inspired to evangelize the lost because we know that eternity is at stake and the outcome is so serious. And Lord, help us to be faithful and to not always wonder, run around wondering, did we do the right thing? Did we say it in the right way? That we would work hard to do that, but that we would trust that you are the one who works in people's hearts, that there's no pressure and Lord, that we would treasure you, your grace, your love, your acceptance. And that, Lord, we would want that same blessing for others. That we would want people to have a relationship with you. And Lord, even in the way that we treat the people around us, that we would treat them with the same love and mercy and compassion that you've treated us with. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help our church to figure out what is essential and to do it really well in your name. Amen.